0: My novel is set in the year 1996 in Cabramatta, which is a Vietnamese refugee enclave in Sydney, Australia. The story begins when a 17-year-old boy is beaten to death at a restaurant. When his older sister, Key returns home for the funeral, she learns that the police are completely stumped by her brother's case. About a dozen witnesses were present, and they all claim to have seen nothing. So she takes it upon herself to track down each witness to find out what happened. And we follow her as she goes on that journey and bit by bit, we get closer and closer to finding out what happened. My name is Tracy Lien and I'm the author of the novel, All That's Left Unsaid. I was born and raised in Sydney, Australia. Um, I've worked as a journalist for the Los Angeles times, and I now live in Brooklyn, New York.
1: Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly a hundred million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to nowadays?
0: That's a really interesting question because for the longest time, I didn't consider myself to be Vietnamese because my family, even though they had been in Vietnam for generations, were ethnically Tio Tiu. And so... You know, despite all our cultural touch points being Vietnamese, and despite my parents speaking Vietnamese to each other at home, and Paris by night always being on the TV, um, and everything being like, well, back in Vietnam this, back in Vietnam that, they insisted, you're Chinese. Specifically, you are Tio Tio. And so I was sent to Chinese school while all my friends got sent to Vietnamese school, and it just baffled me because we were learning Mandarin at Chinese school, and it never got used anywhere. Didn't we didn't speak Mandarin at home, mm. um, and it always just it always felt like uh, Vietnamese is the more useful language given where we live and the community we're a part of. Um, so for the longest time, I didn't myself Vietnamese, but I didn't really call myself Chinese either because I didn't find that I had much of an affinity with people from mainland China. So I would say, I'm from Australia, but my parents are from Vietnam, and then make about what you will. And it wasn't until I wrote all that's left unsaid and people sort of read that basic bio of, okay, you're from Australia, but your parents are from Vietnam. Are you thus Vietnamese Australian? And I had this moment of, like, almost looking over my shoulder to see, uh, are the Vietnamese gatekeepers going to come down on me? Like, if I say yes, like, are they going to be like, well, actually, she doesn't speak much Vietnamese. And and if you look at her family tree and go all the way back, they're actually, you know, and I I remember having a moment where I was like, that would be insane if someone were to gatekeep this. So I was like, yeah, I guess it makes sense to call me Vietnamese Australian. Um, But then the more I think about it, and I am quite comfortable with being called that because I think to be Vietnamese means to be like everyone else. Where If you were to look at the Vietnamese Australian community or the Vietnamese American community, it's complicated, it's nuanced, and it's so diverse. Any blanket statement you can make about being Vietnamese, there is an exception you know? And so really we're just like everyone else. And if that is the case, and I do believe that to be so, then yeah, I can be Vietnamese Australian um, and it feels right.
1: That's a great answer because, you know, Americans or Puerto Rican Americans, Americans or Mexican Americans, Americans or black Americans, America, it's the same thing. It's sort of like this the the way I, the reason I ask it is because it's so varied and we're not here to kind of pinpoint. I'm not here to pinpoint what exactly it means to be Vietnamese. I'm just here to collect the different pictures and the the different, it looks like a collage. You know, there's different data points on the so-called the proverbial map of the Vietnamese culture. And it's interesting to collect the different viewpoints and... and cultural experiences that make up and comprise. Because we all go back uh, far enough where, you know, a lot of people hate this, but, you know, Chinese, a lot of it, a lot of it's Chinese. And my family is, my great-grandfather is 100% T'Challa as well. So, you know, I, I completely understand what, what, what that, where you're coming from with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think what, what, what I really enjoyed about hearing other people on your podcast talk about you know Vietnamese identity and what it means to them is, again, the diversity of responses and what people choose to highlight or, or uh, what is meaningful to them. And it's so varied.
1: Yeah. You spent a significant amount of time um, in journalism. How did that inform the experience of, of writing a book, putting together a book for you like this?
0: So I ended up writing the novel in about two years, in a two-year period when I was in grad school in Kansas, and I don't know if I could have done it as fast or as effectively had I not been a journalist first. So I used to be a business tech reporter at the LA Times, and so many of the skills were transferable. Initially, I thought being a journalist might cramp my style because as a journalist, you're not meant to make things up. And so when I first started writing fiction, I was like, oh, making things up, this feels weird. Um, but then I found all the other skills, like once I got over that, were really useful. So one example would be the discipline of of showing up in writing. You know, if I only waited until I was inspired to write, I don't think I'd write very often. Right. But as a journalist, you can't wait for inspiration. You have a deadline to meet and you meet it. Um. Another thing I learned as a journalist was just because something's interesting to you doesn't mean it's going to be interesting to your reader. Um, So I had to sort of figure out like, okay, I care about this issue. How do I present it in a way so that a reader who has never heard of this subject before will care about it? Um, Research was another area. You know, I was very comfortable with just reaching out to people and asking them, can I interview you or can you share this resource with me? Because, again, as a journalist, the worst thing someone can really say to you is no. Right. Um, So, sort of being fearless in that way. Um, Another thing was like pitching. Um, People don't tend to associate like pitching an idea with being a writer, like in fact, being a, a novelist can be quite a solitary existence. But at some point, you're going to have to pitch to get an agent. You know, you're know, you going to have to pitch when you want to sell your novel. And that's what a journalist does all the time. You want to write an article, you need to clear it, run it by your editor first. Right. Um, and if they want to have it uh, prominently placed in a section, they need to run it by their editor. And if they want it on the front page, then they have to run it by another editor. And so if you can't advocate for your own article or story what chance does anyone else have of advocating for your story right. um so when i was first thinking about my novel and writing it and my friends would ask me oh what what's it about i would i was all over the place i'd be like well mm. you know it's a, it's set in the 90s and, and back in the 90s in this place called Cabramata they well, you know, okay, so back in time and yeah, you know, I was just I could see my friends sort of glaze over. You know, like what what is your story about really? Can you can you get it down to an elevator pitch? Um and so I sort of reflected on the, the process of pitching when I was a journalist. What what is like the hook? What is this going to be about? And then I applied that to my novel. And so now I have the pitch. Down. <laughs> I can get it in in like twenty five seconds ish. Um, and that was how I got my agent. you know my agent responded to a cold email from me. um and based on that, she was willing to read my manuscript and she she rep- decided to represent me. and then from there, you know she was able to sell the novel. But it all started with me being able to advocate for my own story first.
1: Can you give us the elevator pitch right now?
0: Sure. Um, So, my novel is set in the year 1996 in Cabramatta, which is a Vietnamese refugee enclave in Sydney, Australia. The story begins when a 17-year-old boy is beaten to death at a restaurant. When his older sister, Key returns home for the funeral, she learns that the police are completely stumped by her brother's case. About a dozen witnesses were present, and they all claim to have seen nothing. So she takes it upon herself to track down each witness to find out what happened. And we follow her as she goes on that journey. And bit by bit, we get closer and closer to finding out what happened.
1: That is a tight pitch.
0: <laughs> Thank that you. A
1: tight pitch.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was like a lot of behind the scenes work to like yeah. get it down to that.
1: I, you know, I've, I've read the book, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I'm not much of a fiction reader, but uh, doing this work, I've, I've been really thrusted into, you know, reading a lot of fiction work, and, uh, and I'm enjoying it. And, you know, what you just described is not easy to describe. I mean, um, in the film world, you know, those kind of pitches are, you know, log lines are, are so... Uh, Necessary to selling the property, you know, to get it uh, financed and greenlit, you got to be able to go into these meetings and, and do what you just did, and succ- succinctly to do uh, the description the way you just did. So, great, uh, amazing, um, amazing uh, pitch. Now, thank you, <laughs> Cabramata. Uh, can we discuss that? Because, um, you know, I I've heard of the, the 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 town, the city, but I don't know much about it. Why uh, did Vietnamese people settle in that that town?
0: Right. So, Cabramat, in Australia after World War II, um, Australia set up a number of migrant hostels around the country, and this was to facilitate post-war immigration, where people would have a place to live. They would. Uh, be able to have meals there. Oftentimes there would be like some language education support and Cabramatta and its surrounding neighbourhoods um, had a few of those migrant hostels. So initially yeah, after World War II, it was mostly migrants from Europe, but then following the end of the war in Vietnam, a lot of uh, migrants from Vietnam, uh, Cambodia and Laos ended up in that area and it ended up sort of having this effect of like well you hear about there being a community there so if you're a new arrival you're like where are the Vietnamese people at and you you know it's a network effect um and Cabramat is probably most well known in Australia for experiencing a heroin epidemic in the 90s there were very high crime rates. And every time Cabramatta was mentioned in the media, it was for the wrong reasons. You know, it was gang-related, it was drug-related. Um and that was around the time when my family lived in Cabramatta. But it was much more complicated than the media made it out to be. Like absolutely there was a lot of violence. Absolutely, there was a significant drug problem. But for a lot of people, Cabramatta was just home as well. Yeah. And It wasn't a depressed suburb. It was still vibrant. It was still uh, thriving economically because, again, people shopped there. People lived there. People sent their kids to school there. Um, So it was really complicated in that it held all those things at the same time. Um, And so I've always found it to be a fascinating place and time because it's kind of a microcosm. I think of Australia's um, attitudes towards immigration and multiculturalism where in the 90s when things were pretty bad in Cabramatta, a lot of politicians looked at it and said, there's an example of why multiculturalism doesn't work. Here's an example of how some people don't have it in them to be Australian. You know, the problem is the refugees. Mm. Um, And in doing that you know they were just playing to the xenophobia they were playing to their own prejudices and they never really stopped to think about well why is this community struggling it's like yeah there is something wrong with this community it's full of untreated and undiagnosed ptsd right you know there are high levels of poverty there's not enough social support um a lot of the kids at these schools um don't have a lot of uh they don't feel seen or supported at school you know, their teachers don't really know how to respond to them. Um, their parents are overworked and not around. So, they're looking for their community as well. And the gangs provide that sense of belonging. And so, you could just see all these slippery slopes there. Um, so, yeah, Cabramata was a very, I think, complicated place in the 90s.
1: And and where were you and your family in the sort of social schematic you know yeah were were they working all the time and you because you seem to have penetrated deeply into the the background the things that are happening in society on every level from at the police level down to the where the teachers are thinking down to like lucky eight the restaurant just all of it is very vibrant and I feel like you had to have lived it uh, and and participated in life in Cabramata to write about the things that you wrote about.
0: Yeah. So I was eight in 1996. Um, so my exposure to Cabramata, like we were there all the time. My parents worked in Cabramata and they did work a lot, um, but everything I saw was from the point of view of a child. And so I had to... So I held on to that, you know, I held on to my memories and I mined my memories quite a bit, but then I had to supplement it with research. You know, as an eight-year-old, I was not privy to what it was like being in a gang. I was not privy to what it was like to be arrested or to be caught up in that criminal justice system. So I sort of laid out like, what do I know? And now what do I not know? What what continues to have like a question mark on top of it? Now, how do I fill in the blanks? How do I fill in those knowledge gaps? And a lot of it was research through, okay, what were the newspapers saying at the time? Let's go through the archives, 1995, 1996, 97. What were the major newspapers and local newspapers saying? Second, uh, what were the ethnographic researchers saying? You know, Cabramata was uh, like... Given the, the amount of drug use, a lot of infectious disease experts were paying attention to Kavramata as right. well. What kind of research were they conducting? Um, and then tracking down like the names of people who were working on that. Even though it was twenty five years ago, I would then Google them and find out. Okay, this was a while ago, but do you what What do you remember? Can I interview you? Um, do you have any other research that maybe wasn't published? have you kept in touch with the people that you interviewed back then? And if so, could you introduce them to me? Um, So applying my, like putting on my journalist hat and trying to like travel back in time and thinking, okay, 1996, if I was, if I was a journalist back then, what would I be looking for? And how do I do that now in 2019,
1: 2020, 2021? Amazing. It's, it's a incredible, what kind of experience that we have in, past lives, uh, past career lives that can come to the, the, the aid of, of what we're currently trying to do. Now, um, the Vietnamese community in, in Cabramatta, you know, we don't hear a whole lot, but you know, are, why, why is there remaining so much, um, I don't know if remaining is the right word, why is there so much uh, kind of poverty is there let me rephrase this question because i'm i'm assuming that there is uh poverty and and, and craziness that's happening in cabramata during those times and now is it being perpetuated today or, or has it you know the the parents sort of got their second generation to go to college and everybody's kind of like moved on what where is it at today that's my question i guess yeah
0: Right. Cabramata today is quite different. Um, the heroin epidemic ended in the early 2000s. And I, I think a, a variety of things contributed to that. Um, you know, drug shipments got cut off, the purity of heroin changed. But also, a lot of the people, younger people who saw what gang life and addiction did to their parents, to their siblings, to their aunts and uncles and cousins, they were like, no, thank you, mm. you know. And so, Cabramatta is actually now a pretty expensive place mm. to live. It's still an ethnic enclave. And if you want, like, really great Vietnamese food, if you want good groceries, still the place to be, still as vibrant as ever. But it has really cleaned up. Gentrified. And I don't know – It I wouldn't say gentrified necessarily because it still feels like – Oh yeah, old ladies in visors doing their grocery shopping. Mm. Like, why people haven't started shopping there regularly yet? Mm. <laughs> um, but in terms, of, like, if you want to live there, buy and buy property there, it is expensive now. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's definitely rehabilitated quite a bit since the nineties.
1: What brought you to the United States?
0: I always wanted to work overseas, and. Being from Australia, most Australians end up in London. And so I, I figured I'll probably end up there for a few years just to try it out. But I was working for Vox Media as a video game journalist at the time. Mm. And I I was based in Australia and I was essentially working their, their night shift. Um, And a position opened up in San Francisco. And so I just applied for the transfer and I got it. And I taught myself two years. Like I'll just do two years, get the experience, and then go back to Australia and continue living my life in Sydney. Um, but within that two year window, I got a job at the LA Times. And then I was like, well, I can't leave now. Like I've just started this cool job. Um and then two years in, like, I'm still loving the job. And then I meet my now husband. And it's like, well, I can't leave now either. Like I'm dating this person I really like and I like my job. And then, you know, before you know it, it's like, in February of next year, it'll be 10 years.
1: Wow. Did you ever move down to LA? Before
0: I didn't. I stayed in the Bay Area because I covered Silicon Valley. Um, but I was down in LA a lot.
1: Now, th- what are the kind of the significant differences of people, Vietnamese people in the US versus Vietnamese people in Australia?
0: In terms of, I've actually found a lot of similarities um, and Let's a lot of them there. seem a pretty surface level. Like, again, I say Paris by night, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. And it's crazy because we grew up on opposite sides of the planet. <laughs> I say Hennessy at a wedding or like Hennessy shots at a wedding. And every Vietnamese American I've encountered knows exactly what I mean. Or like dad in silk pajamas. <laughs> it's like people know. Um, but then in terms of differences, I this is – I think in America, Vietnamese Americans have um, more robust representation in the Mm -hmm. arts and in the media and even in uh, entrepreneurship. And I don't know how to quantify this, but I feel that that has a ripple effect on people's risk aversion, on on emboldening people. Mm -hmm. Um, I just feel like a lot of Vietnamese Americans I've met are a little more willing to take a risk yeah, I don't necessarily think, you know, if you can't see, it, you can't be it, but I do think if you can't see it, it makes a lot it makes it yeah. a lot harder to be it. Cuz every time you do something, it feels like you're you know, treading new ground. Um and so I think in Australia where maybe a handful of Vietnamese Australian novelists have broken through into the mainstream within the last 10 years. Yeah. You know, compare that to here, where if you go to JFK or LaGuardia right now, there are novels by a Huynh, a Tran, and a Lian, all available like at the same time. And it's like, that that feels incredible. amazing.
1: Yeah, that's right? incredible.
0: Yeah, and so I'm not sure how you would measure that, but I, I do sense that that does have an effect on people.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. But th- there's just, I think the volume of Vietnamese people in the US is just far greater than anywhere in the world, right? There's just the population of Vietnamese people here. It's just strength in numbers. And I think that when they gather over the last 40, 50 years, it's just sort of a snowball effect. And, you know, the population in Australia or Britain are just tiny compared to Orange County.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Population size, probably a factor. But here's the interesting thing about Australia. In the 2020 census, about 25% of respondents said that they're of Asian descent. Wow. In cities like Sydney and Melbourne, that number is closer to 30%. And yet you wouldn't know it. Based on the images and the narratives that Australia exports of itself, you would still be thinking of the Outback yeah. and Blonde Surfers on the Beach, yeah. when really like a quarter to a third of of people in the major cities identify as Asian.
1: Wow. That's yeah, and s- much bigger than the US.
0: It is. Like I think in the US it's six percent. I mean, America's population obviously is orders of magnitude larger, but as a percentage, like if you were to visit mm-hmm. Sydney or Melbourne, just walking around the downtown area, you would you would probably be surprised that it's a lot more Asian than you would expect.
1: Now, does that translate into sort of this hegemonic hierarchy uh, in Australia? I guess the ratio, the proportion of racism in the u.s against asian and in australia against asian or the love the affinity for the culture how how is it sort of showing up in the different continents
0: i think both countries have perpetuated the myth of the model minority know, same in Australia as in America, there is this notion that, well, the Asians, they're the quiet, hardworking people who don't cause any problems. And there's an asterisk next to that, Mm -hmm. which is until we perceive them to be a threat, in which case they're out. Yeah. Um, And, you know, we saw that at the height of the pandemic. And I think a lot of Asian Australians felt it too. Um, So I think yeah, again, we we are sort of considered docile, quiet, hardworking, smart, and that can work for and against us, depending on the context.
1: Yeah, it sounds like that in the US. Yeah. But in Australia, without the sort of the slavery history, you know, of, of blacks, there's aboriginals and, you know, also people of color in Australia, it, is race heavy is is it a heavy topic in australia compared to the u.s or does it sort of like it's the same
0: it i my sense is that americans are have been having the conversation for longer like americans are a bit further ahead in terms of confronting racism and generally uh you know, are a bit more comfortable talking about it. Right. Whereas in Australia, there is still, there's some conversation happening, but there's still a lot of denial. You know, there's a lot of denial about there being, you know, significant systemic racism against the indigenous population. Um, And so I feel like we're playing catch up to a certain extent. So in 1996, um, And this appears in my novel as well, but uh, a woman named Pauline Hanson was elected to the Senate. And in her maiden speech to Parliament, she said that she was afraid that Australia is being swamped by Asians. They form ghettos and do not assimilate. And I'm not sure that that sort of thing could be said in America without people really pouncing on it, Right. But for me, I, I remember that speech being broadcast and watching it. And the reason it hit me so hard was because that was the first time I saw a person in a position of authority say something that I knew to be bad with no real repercussions. No one interrupted her. You know, no one shut her down. It was like she was able to say it in Parliament. And so that stuck with me. And it still... Astounds me um, that she was able to say it, but also that she is still a senator in the country 25 plus years later. But
1: but that's happening in the U.S. now, too, without repercussions or there are repercussions, but the repercussions aren't damaging enough to to kind of get people out of the way. This is, I think, in the last four or five years uh, since Trump was elected, you know, there's a little bit more openness and freedom from these people to kind of like really spout what they what they feel, um, and they don't really care if they're if they're being pushed back. You know, I, I, the repercussions are, are very minimal now.
0: Yeah, it seems like a lot of people feel emboldened to yeah. say whatever they want, um, whereas previously there was a little bit more shame. <laughs> yeah, um, there's just not really any shame now. But I remember there was an interview that. Um, the author Zadie Smith gave, and she said something to the effect of, you know, the thing she likes about America or what's noteworthy about America is that you have a very loud group of people who are sort of shouting lies or shouting the wrong thing, but you have an, an a group that's as large, if not larger, shouting back. back. Yeah, And that's why it can feel kind of chaotic in the US sometimes, but that's because- people are pushing back. And I find that quite hopeful.
1: Yeah, that, that's something that we don't talk about often is the fact that we're at each other's throat all the time is a healthy thing. It's a good thing. Because like I think I'm imagining in Australia, the Vietnamese population, the Asian population might be a little bit more quiet when they're confronted in 1996 with the person in parliament speaking that sort of rhetoric. And here we'll push back and fight, but then it, it feels, you know, like it's all worth it to really voice what we have to say. And in the end, there is change uh as we go along. I mean, it's slow, but there's change that that happens along the way when we can really freely communicate how we feel.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm a really optimistic person mm-hmm. and I see the examples set in America like how you know, the formation of this idea of the Asian American during the civil rights movement and how we have built on that over the decades, I think that is really inspiring and heartening. And, you know, I, I hope to see something like that replicated in Australia with people, like, just standing up for the right thing.
1: What inspired the book? What inspired the characters? How did they come to life out of nowhere? Are they based right. on anything? Um did you get a a a um, a seed of a story from something you read? Where did it come from?
0: The story came together through a number of things, and the main thing was that I always knew what the spine was going to be. This the the thing, the message I wanted to get across, and from the very beginning, it was: I want people to know how it feels. I want people to know how it feels to have grown up Asian in Australia in the nineties. So what does that mean? Well, I want to challenge the myth of the model minority. As a kid in Australia, I was told from a very young age, you're as Aussie as they come. Of course you belong. You'll get a fair go like everyone else because that's what Australia values. And then I realized at some point that that, that's not true. That didn't apply to me or to people who looked like me. Um, I realized that my citizenship was conditional. Mm -hmm. It was conditional on my impeccable behavior. I had to be perfect. It was conditional on my gratitude. And if I stepped out of line, I risked being perceived as a nuisance or a threat. And to be on the receiving end of that sort of like conditional citizenship, that sort of fear, that sort of hate, it's incredibly hurtful and confusing and disappointing. And I wanted to get that across. And so I knew, okay, I'm I'm telling a story that deals with these heavy issues how do i write a story that doesn't feel like homework because there are a lot of books that you hear about them and you're like i'm sure that'll be amazing but i'm not really in the mood for it (laughs) so you buy it and you leave it on your shelf and then like five years later you know maybe you get around to it and i was like i i don't want my book to sort of fall in that category i don't want people to write it off um so at that point, I was like, I could write it in any number of ways, right? This could be a rom com, this could be historical fiction, this could be a poetry collection. What form am I going to choose? And at the time, I was reading, um, I I was reading a lot of murder mysteries, and I was like, these are the books that once I start, I can't put them down. Um, they so hook and what grab can, you. I, yeah, So what can I learn from them? And I knew that my skill set was not traditional murder mystery. I knew I wasn't going to write an Agatha Christie. Mm. Um, But I was like, I can learn things. I can take like little qualities here and there to bolster the thing I'm writing. Um, And so that was like another part of it. And then in my research, I'm looking at old news clippings. And a lot of the news clippings are like 100, 200, 300 words long. And they're just blips about like crimes of the week. And one of the clippings I read was about how there was this fashion show, community-run fashion parade in the Cabramatta area, and these two gangs showed up and had, like, there was, like, a gang-related fight. And the police showed up and they said there were, like, 300 people in attendance and they all claimed that they didn't see anything. You know, and there's, like, a quote from the police officer that's, like, yeah, that's a problem with this community. Like, they won't talk. And so now I'm like connecting dots. I've I've got a kernel from this article. I've got this kernel from the murder mysteries I'm reading. I've got a kernel from like the spine. And then, you know, that's how I came up with all that's left unsaid.
1: Beautiful. It makes sense. And the calculate, well, calculation is a heavy word, but to figure out what people, because I know exactly what you're talking about. There's like books that I have that, you know, they're heavy, but they just, you know, we know that it should be required reading for anybody who's seeking some cultural kind of, um, knowledge, enrichment, enrichment. Yeah. yeah. But you know, you get lazy because it's not done in an entertaining way and nor probably the, the author didn't set out to do it and write it in an entertaining way, but to have that sort of like the marketing hat on and, and, You know, it's almost like the pitching hat that you talked about earlier. It's like knowing that, you know, you're sitting in front of a committee that could perhaps say, yeah, this story will sell. Then, you know, that's sort of like, you know, you can get your point across, but put it in a vehicle that's kind of like in a way that people will really, really gravitate towards it.
0: Yeah, it comes back to that lesson from journalism, which is just because something's interesting to you doesn't mean it'll be interesting to your reader. And You know, I didn't necessarily think of like what will sell because no one really knows what will sell. Like, whatever is in vogue right now, by the time you're done writing this novel, two, three, five years from now, you have no idea Mm -hmm. what's going to be in. So, it was important to me that the spine of the story remained intact the whole time which was no matter how I change the story, no matter how many characters I add or cut or kill, (laughs) I'm not compromising on the message. And with that intact, I I could do anything, you know, and the the story did change many times with each rewrite, like characters were added, the structure changed, um, characters changed in personalities and in motives and I didn't get too, like, cut up about it because I was like, ultimately, the message is still the same, though. And so I didn't feel like I was compromising. I was just doing what served uh, what served the story the best.
1: You know, uh, listening to you talk about the, the fields that you covered as a journalist, uh, games and tech and business, what's funny now when I think about it is you write about, like, little boy farting and the stench and the reaction of the siblings and the 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 carnal touches the senses that you've kind of put in there is that sort of like a a switch that you had to kind of like turn off and on going from because i can't imagine in journalists journalism that you write like that so you know where along the way did you kind of like understand to make this these people Come alive, you have to add this these touches to it.
0: In a lot of my beat reporting for journalism, I I didn't include these things. Like if I'm writing an earnings report for like how well Google did last quarter, obviously that's just like the numbers, that's just like the analyst statement. But anytime I was given an opportunity to write a longer feature story where I could really just focus on a person, I would remember that. It's the details that stick with people. You might not remember the statistics of uh, or this, any of the numbers related to this person's business, but you will remember if I note that their hands were always sweaty. Hmm. You will probably remember if that character is written as someone like, he's a CEO with terrible breath. You know, like those the character uh, building details, other things that stick with you. And they were always the things I paid attention to the most. Like if I was interviewing someone, I would pay attention to like, well, okay, not just what they're wearing, how do they carry themselves? Do they have any interesting tics that say something about them? And so anytime I had an opportunity to sort of go a bit deeper into a character, I would seize on it. And writing fiction just meant I could do that all the time now. And so I, I had a lot of fun with it.
1: Yeah, it shows too.
0: American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. And
1: and But on the other side of that, it also shows the depth of how deeply you go into um, these characters that are very different from, I'm just guessing that they're very different from you. You know, you, you don't you don't sound like the gang members that you write about or these wayward characters that you write about. And, you know, if you're not spending the time um, deep in those worlds, like I kept thinking about, like, I always think about the creation of these things, right? Like to sit and to squeeze these, you know, the water out of rock, basically. You have to like bring it, you have to bring so much focus into developing a sense that we are there with them. And when you're writing things that are like way out of your sort of um, who you are, uh, I ma- it, it made me think about you probably having to spend time. For example, this whole thing about the, um, I think it was Eddie's, uh, there was a character about Eddie and, and you know, the police you, you you brought in this sort of detail about the uh, his parents, uh, you know, was a military soldier and, you know, the military police at the time had to bring in and cat, catch all these people who were trying to go AWOL and, and not do their military duty at the time. I, I was blown away. Like, how did you get that detail into the book? And it's just a small thing, but it's like it it made... It made that character's sort of um, trajectory make sense for me because, like, I I could relate to it because you know, and we've talked about this. My my dad and my uncles were were the were the guy were the bad guys in in that particular framing that you did.
0: Yeah. So for people who haven't read the book yet, um, the scene you're referring to is one of the the witnesses is talking to Key, and she's trying to understand why didn't you talk to the police? Why didn't you tell the police the truth? Um, You know, is it because like, Oh, your family's really distrusting of the police. Right. And then there's like a brief flashback to when Eddie's father was trying to avoid the draft in Vietnam and he got dragged in anyway by the police who, and he was telling the police, I'm under 18. I'm under 18. I can't be conscripted into the military. And the police are like, well, you've got wisdom teeth, so you're old enough. Um, and so that is used as the explanation for, like, why is his family so afraid of the police across the board? And that anecdote, and you're right, it's it's one line in a book, yeah. but it's it's a story that I had heard from my own parents. So my my father and my uncles, they were in high school, during for most of the war and one of my uncles was he's older and he was he did join the army but um they saw a lot of their classmates and a lot of their friends try to avoid being conscripted because they were like i'm not a fighter i'm built to be like maybe a bookkeeper i'm built to like answer telephones like if i get conscripted it's a death sentence for a lot of these young guys or kids, really. Um, And so they would, you know, my parents and my uncles would sort of recount the things that people did to try to get out of it. They were like falsifying birth certificates. How young can you be? Like you're now 23. Can you convincingly be a 16 year old? Um, And just the fear that those, those guys must've felt um, and so I just remember that detail, and I was like, oh, that would make sense mm. for this family, and I don't need to go into depth, and I don't really need to present it with judgment. This is just a fact for this family, that they were terrified, and this has left a mark on them. Here you go. And it just sort of flushes out his parents without ever having to show his parents. Um so I've, I've done a lot of that where I'll hear a story about someone else and I'll be like, huh, that reveals something about them. Yeah, I think it would make sense here.
1: Good art, good films, good books can do that. They magically bring in this ability for you to be transported back in time to understand these sort of motivations, these sort of like, positions and angles in one or two lines. And I thought that was, in my mind, I was like, that's a lot of heavy lifting to just prove sort of the fear of police. But this is happening throughout your your book. It's happening in the gang world. It's happening in uh, the little kids farting and playing with cabbage patch kit, dolls. It's happening so often that you know, it, it it makes you transported. Uh, and I have friends who've read the book as well. They're like, they, we, they couldn't put it down because I, now I get it. It's magically bringing the reader into, you've magically brought the reader into the world because there's so many details that are like, they're true and they're, they 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 come from a place that you've heard as a, as a, as a person growing up. Uh, these real details that make sense.
0: Yeah, and in addition to details, I think it's, it's this idea that you're as real as me. You know, even if I don't agree with you, even if I don't agree with the decisions you've made in your life, you're as real as me. Therefore, if I'm going to write a character like you, I need to suspend my judgment. And I need to be willing to imagine, okay, you've you've done something that I think is wrong but you think is right like you think that you're 100 right so what life have you lived to get you to that point and that's what I'm imagining for every character most of these characters they have chosen like they have witnessed the murder and have chosen to lie to the police and just on a like a blanket statement here like I don't really agree with that <laughs> like I mm. think you know you should probably come forward with what you saw but they each believed that they did the right thing. And so, I could write them all off as like, well, they're selfish, they're cowards, yeah. but that wouldn't make for a particularly interesting or satisfying read. And so, I had to imagine each of their lives, what happened to them, what were the pivotal moments in their lives to get them to that point where they would make a, that decision and say, yep, yeah, this is the right thing.
1: The reality of hu- of human beings are, there's so much nuances to people anyway. There's no black and white. It's people do things that they think that are right or wrong. And, you know, oftentimes it's just doesn't make any sense to, to the outsider outside of their brain, but people are doing things that, you know, it's like gray, but it makes sense.
0: Yeah.
1: 100%. Yeah. No, there's a lot of pain and real grief that happens between the characters of Key and Minnie and um, I, I, as I'm reading I'm like are, do you sort of identify more with Key or Minnie or both do you feel like this is an, a way to, to talk about the spectrum of who you are?
0: I actually identify the most with Lulu who's the 10 year old girl wow. <laughs> so in terms of personality. I think me when I was 10 is basically Lulu in terms of the way she thinks, the way she speaks, her particular sense of humor, her observations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I relate the most to her. And I sort of just loosely modeled her on who I was when I was a child. And then with Key and Minnie, it's it's interesting because I I have friends who recognize elements of me in both of them. Which is like I have always been a pretty um, staunch follower of rules. I've always been like a kind of nerdy kid, like the you know, the good kid who got A's. Yeah, that was me. And so I gave those qualities to Key, but I do think that Key is so much more anxious than I've ever been. I think she's so much more insecure than I've ever been, um, and I think the fact that she's a big sister changes her as well. I am i don't have a younger brother. I have an older brother. And so, my dynamic with him is very different. Mm. And so, I've changed a lot of aspects of her life. But sort of like if you think of like a candle having like the top note smells like this and then the middle note and then you, it's got a deeper bottom note that smells like something else. The top note of key, a lot of people are like, oh, that's you, mm. isn't it? And I'm like, well, if you sat in a classroom with me, you might think, I'm, like, key because, you know, I was always very studious and hardworking. But then when you get to know me me a bit better, then there's some of many that comes through, which is, like, the older I get and the more I learn about history, the history of Vietnam, the history of colonialism, the history of Asian Australians and Asian Americans, I get really pissed off. (laughs) And I imagine, like, if I had known... In high school, what I know, what I know now, would I have been as good a student, you know, or would I have pushed back? Would I have rebelled in some way? I don't know. I can only speculate. But so much of that fight <laughs> that right. I I now feel, I gave it to Minnie. Minnie. So much of you know when when you you develop, you come, you have the perfect comeback but like half an hour later, <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: you know, Minnie is the character who has the perfect comeback immediately. Really? So in some ways she's like a bit of the fantasy assertive mm-hmm. version of me. But then again, I, ch- I changed so many aspects of her that she is a completely different person. So I, I relate to both of them.
1: Yeah. And, and some points I felt like they were one and the same person, but, Different days, right? You have your good days or bad days, but they kind of like have that fierce, you know, that their moral compass is very much intact in both situations. But you know, Key had the more fortunate kind of background, and and Minnie had the unfortunate family background, and but very similar will to kind of um, survive and 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 thrive in their own their own way, and you know, tragically. Um, one life is is um, is is dictated by what her family sort of background was.
0: Yeah, and I like that you pointed out that they're not just trying to survive, they're trying to thrive. And these are two young women who so desperately want to thrive and are trying, they're trying different strategies. So key is her approach is if I follow all the rules, if I am the mortal minority, is that a way for me to thrive in Australian society? Whereas many early on recognizing that, oh, this game is rigged. Can I thrive if I reject it, if I try to play outside of, of this game? Um, and what they both discover in their own ways is that in a society where white supremacy is called to like the foundation of it, there's no opting out and there's no winning, really. It's rigged at every level. Um, and that's kind of the re- realization that they each arrive at at different points.
1: Now, without giving away the, the ending or sort of like the whole idea of it, um, when you were writing and putting the story together, how much of the ending did you already have in mind or did it change um, as you wrote through it
0: I didn't know how it would end when I started and I I, I don't plan and I don't outline whoa yeah so, so then- with my fir- with my first draft I was my greatest fear was that I wouldn't have enough material to write a novel because if you think about it a novel is at a minimum 60,000 words as a journalist, the average length of my article was 400. So I was like doing the math. I was like, I think that's, I have to write 170 articles, except I don't even have a prompt. (laughs) Like I'm not responding to the news of the day. So I was like, God, this is going to be, this is, daunting. yeah, this is really daunting. So my, my strategy was, I'll just write 300 words a day, every day. Um, You know, you'll, you text more than 300 words a day. And the idea is, like, just sit at your keyboard and start writing and get to 300, and no matter what, you'll have succeeded, you wow. know, because you hit your mark every day. Because the number of times people give up because they've had, like, a failure streak, like, oh, I didn't hit the gym, you know, this week, therefore it's all a failure, I'm going to order a pizza now. You know, when it's like, no, 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 like, don't, don't make it so easy to fail then. Make it easy to succeed every day. Now you're on a winning streak every day.
1: But here's the problem. You do 15 days, 300 pages, but you've made a severe left turn when you should have probably made a right turn. How do you course correct if you don't have an outline or any direction that you're going?
0: So with the first draft, I see it as sort of like Instead of, let's use a ceramics analogy. The first draft, you're not building anything. The first draft is you're actually digging for the raw substance. Mm -hmm. You're looking for clay. And so if I took like a wrong turn, I would just make a note and I'd be like, let's just start from where I think it should start now. Let's put like an asterisk here. We'll come back to it on a second draft. But now let's continue heading in the right direction. And so by the time I'm done with my first draft, it's it's a mess. Like it doesn't really it kind of resembles a novel, but a character might have changed personalities five times. Like by the end of it, I'll have decided, well, actually, Minnie's more of a this type of person. So then in the second draft, I'm looking at everything and I'm like, okay, knowing now that Minnie is X, every time she appears and her personality is something different, I need to go and change revise. that now, revise it. Or even the structure, I'll have, I wrote 10,000 words on the character Jimmy Carter, not the president, (laughs) but the character named Jimmy Carter. He had his own chapter. I was so pleased with it. And then when I went back and reread everything in order, I was like, this chapter doesn't add anything. It doesn't build on the mystery, nor does it answer any of Key's questions that Flora's chapter doesn't answer. Like it's nice to spend time with Jimmy, but he's not pulling his weight. So Jimmy gets cut and his entire chapter gets rolled into like five sentences that appear in someone else's chapter. And so with each draft, it's like going back and now we're like Mm -hmm. shaping it to try to make it like the strongest story possible. But that first draft is really just like lowering the stakes and it's about momentum Um, and just about building the habit of writing frequently.
1: Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, because there's sort of like two camps of writers. I think, I don't know if it was Stephen King or one of these guys wrote a book on writing and they talked about pantsies. So pantsies are people who write uh, by the seat of their pants. They don't outline, they just free, free, free write. And they let their fingers do the sort of direction taking, and then there's people who do meticulous planning, um, chapter by chapter by chapter, and they have to plan it out. So it's it's you know it's it's really amazing to know that how complex your story turned out to be, that you really didn't have that sort of planning, and you just kind of like went with I guess the muses. Uh, the voices in your your head going to your fingers and just letting but that it go was along.
0: that was just the first draft, though. Yeah. once I had this hot mess of a first yeah. draft, that's when I planned, you know, where I would start to mm-hmm. think, okay, I've written all these characters now. Does it make sense for them to be in the order that they're in? And then so I started rearranging them from the order of who can reveal the least to who can reveal the most. So a lot of that strategizing and calculation comes in once I have something to strategize and calculate. Um, but that first draft, I, I really try to go easy on myself um, because it's hard. Making stuff up is really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I write every day, not because like I'm not dogmatic about it and I – And I don't think anyone has to follow that process. It's more that I'm so intimidated by the prospect of writing a novel that that's the only way I can tackle it through like small bites each day.
1: Yeah, that's a learning um, lesson for anybody listening is if you could take that philosophy into the gym, into becoming a chef, musician, because that muscle of doing it every day is sort of what gets you to the finish line. It's not, you know, these big, you know, let's do 2000 words today and, you know, and crank that out. No, it's a three, 400, you know, it's a slow marathon that, uh, that, that it takes.
0: Yeah. The gym analogy I really love because it's, it's really apt, you know, like someone going into the gym, wanting mm-hmm. to be able to do a pull up. It's like, well, you should start by strengthening your back. <laughs> Um, you know, it's like just start by doing small things. Don't do the grand gesture, like, don't just do the murph once a year and wonder why you hurt so much afterwards. Like, you need to train up to the murph.
1: And you know, a lot of people are like, Well, I want a six-pack this summer and it's in January right now, and you know, by June we're going to the beach. Your body takes years to get to the condition that you're Actual mind is seeing. Your, your mind is seeing six pack and a, a toned body, but it takes three to four years of consistent everyday eating and going to the gym to do it right.
0: Yeah. And so, and again, that's why I think my time in journalism yeah. really helped because I was writing almost every day. It wasn't anything like what I write now. Um, but I think our prior professions regardless of what it is whether it's writing whether you spend a lot of time interacting with people whether you're really analytical in your job there are ways that that can actually inform your writing
1: yeah for sure now i want to ask lulu because uh, you brought her up in the audiobook i think there's there's three voices right there's like the main woman who narrates and then I think at the end there's a, a man, a very elegant sounding man that that narrates, and then there's one that has Lulu in there, right? Yeah. But, and I and I wondered because it was like the woman was like ninety percent, and then Lulu was like you know that blip, and then the man at the end. What what did you have any control? Did you kind of like push for that voice to, of Lulu to to be reading in the audible book?
0: So. It was actually my publisher's idea to cast uh, a separate person to read Lulu's chapter. And I wasn't expecting them to, like, cast a child, but that was one option. So they were like, here are some adults that can do a childlike voice. And here is an eight-year-old girl named Amelia Nguyen. Um, And her audition was just done on an iPhone. Like you could hear her sister playing in the background. You could hear her mom washing dishes or something. And, you know, I guess she was like just reading from my novel. And her attitude and her sass just came through. And I was like, yes, that is what my character sounds like. Because when I write children, I try to remind myself of how sassy I was as a kid. I mean, you have young children, right? Like they're Mm -hmm. not quaint. You know, they're not, sometimes they can be these innocent angelic things, but sometimes like you overhear kids talking to each other, you overhear them when they're playing. They can be so funny, like the confidence, The (laughs) like they're just hilarious. And so I wanted a child's perspective in the story because first off, I think it can be really compelling to see what a child notices and what a child misunderstands so lulu is one of the witnesses to the murder sort of and so what she sees and what she absorbs from her parents it creates a mystery in itself Mm -hmm. when you're trying to understand and interpret like what does she mean when she says that her mom was hugging her head what does she mean when you know, she's she's saying that, like, oh, that that guy had he looked naughty because he had long hair. And you're like, what does that mean? Um and I just find it so much fun to embody a child because they just say whatever they're thinking. And it can often just be like really funny or nonsensical, but it makes sense to them. And so you couple that confidence with that innocence
1: it, it, it was it just also, fun it, it also gives the audience and the readers some contextual clues into the story and to the characters and to the world that we're kind of it's a very raw way to see the the characters and the the world that we're seeing it's very raw because it's from a, a child's you know, uh, perspective. And from the voice of this child, I, you know I was taken into a t- totally different um, room, if you will. And I was like, "Whoa, this is just a way a different hold up. There's a different way of seeing this play out. And from a, from a child's uh, eye, it's just more lush and more uh, raw at the same time,
0: yeah. There's a novel called "A Children's Bible" by Lydia Millet, and it's taught from the point of view of children. And not spoiling anything when I describe it, but, um, you know, these kids are vacationing with their family and family friends and a hurricane is about to hit. And the kids are taking it very seriously because they're very conscious of, like, climate change and they're very sensitive to what's going on. And the parents are like, well, a storm's about to hit, better stock up on the booze. You know, when you do a grocery run, don't forget to get some tequila. I want some, like, beef eater gin, whatever. And the kids are sort of – you see it through the kids' eyes and you're like, oh, my God, these parents are – oh, my God, they're me. Like, you know, if someone were to tell me, like, there's going to be a blackout, I'd be like, don't forget to get the tequila and the line, you know. And it's like, no, we should be getting out of here.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) You know, and so I think having – telling a story from a child's point of view can sometimes have the effect of making it feel foreign. Like, you're no longer in the familiar place of seeing things through the eyes of adults, you know, you're now seeing things from the point of view of people who who need you, who need you for their survival. And what do they think of you? And they just judge so much more, so much more harshly than you would imagine.
1: You know, and her talking about poop is hilarious too.
0: <laughs> yeah, poop humor, it's, I mean, every kid, Yeah. every kid is obsessed with poop.
1: Yeah. It's so naturally. Thing, yeah. It's really strange, but my son is obsessed with it. Continues to do it in the most yeah, inappropriate also- times and places. It's just it's funny. Have you spent any time in Vietnam?
0: I went there once when I was 19 with my parents. It I I think I just was not in a place to really appreciate it at the time. Um because I think we, we coupled the trip with a vacation to Japan. And so, like, having just been to Japan, I was like, it's so high tech and Hello Kitty and the, like, the toilet sings to me. And then we went to Vietnam. And I was just like, again, as this 19 year old, like, wait, what? Like, this is different. I, I don't really get it. <laughs> um, so, I'm actually taking my parents there uh, in February.
1: Have they been back?
0: My dad has been back a few times. My mom's last time there was in 2008. Okay. And her last time before that was 1978. So I think when I went back with her when I was 19, um, her reaction to it was very much a shock. She was like, I don't recognize this place anymore. Like we went to Zheolong because that's where she had grown up. And she was like, I, I don't recognize it. Yeah. And it was I think it was very confronting to her. Um, And I had not done the research to really appreciate what was going on. Whereas now I'm like, okay, we're in our mid thirties. We're about as mature as like, if we're not mature now, it's never going to (laughs) happen. So I'm taking my parents and we're going to do this together. um, And it'll be great.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's a wonderful place. I I just got back a week ago. Um, My second time this year, it's just... um, changes every time you know even every three four months it's just there's a new feeling there's a new and it's just so vast now the improvements and the buildings that have gone up it's you know there's areas where it's just like there's not a blade of grass or it's just concrete and, and steel
0: do you have family there
1: yeah my brother moved to vietnam 20 about 20 years ago and he oh, wow. started an animation business. Um, he's got about 200 people working uh, in wow. the animation company. And then he branched out and started a toy company about seven years ago. And two years ago, he started a game company. So he's uh, he's really in that design space where, you know, it's constantly designing things around story. He and I both kind of started out in life in the film business. And um, so he continued on with, with the animation side and... I stayed on with the sort of the uh, development story development side.
0: Yeah is 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 there a part of Vietnam that you feel particularly drawn to? Like every time you go back, is there a favorite spot?
1: That's a great question. No, mm -mm, there's not, and um, I don't feel like I'm an American, and I don't feel like I'm Vietnamese. It's just a really strange place to be sometimes. Yeah, I, I grapple with that a lot and um, deal I, dealing with it, um, even the more I get to know more Vietnamese people, um, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I just have to kind of accept one day that, you know, um, based on the history of where I was born, the time period, that maybe there will never be a sort of connection to um, any one place, you know. I was born in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania on the East coast. And then we moved out when I was like a year old to LA. And I grew up in Koreatown for the first 25 years of my life in Koreatown in LA, but I still don't feel, I mean, I feel it's familiar and Saigon feels familiar the way LA feels familiar to me, but I don't have this sort of like, oh my God, I'm home feeling.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I go back to Australia, I I feel very connected to Cabramatta. Mm. But not to the rest of Sydney. Like if I go into the downtown Sydney area, I'm like, mm. okay, it's a nice city. No connection. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, that's new, yeah. I guess. Um, but it's really about being in Cabramatta. But then I'm also aware of the fact that I haven't lived there in nearly 10 years. And sort of feeling like, am I, can I claim this? You know, if I haven't been here in a decade, like, do I get my sort of uh, belonging card taken away mm-hmm. from me? Yeah. You know, it's just it's these weird things. It's probably most in our mostly in our heads, but it's a very weird thing to try to process.
1: Yeah, and maybe the creative class is sort of plagued with this kind of way of looking at it because we're constantly analyzing and we're writing about it we're creating stories around it and it just uh doesn't feel like anything's rooted for me it just doesn't feel like i'm rooted in one space and that could be a good thing or bad thing sometimes you know depending on the day but um yeah it's just weird like my brother bought a big property um to 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 do the studio in district near district seven and I feel like when I go back there, it's almost like well we're just here temporarily. It's weird. Hmm. Like it just feels like he's there temporarily. And this is not the, the 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 twenty acre ranch that that he or I should be buried at, you know, or, or buried on. You know, it's like and I and I'm I'm maybe this is what propels the, the podcast sometimes is like looking for that proverbial place to kind of rest my hat hang my hat on and 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 one day feel like this feels like home but that yeah so that's a great question because yeah hasn't happened
0: yeah i mean perhaps it's cheesy but like maybe home is people it's wherever your people are and so for me i i feel quite at home in brooklyn Mm -hmm. um but that's because like so many of my friends are here. And so it's a very friendly place to me. Like I can walk down the street and run into a friend of mine. Um, But if they were to leave, then I'm not sure Brooklyn would have have the pull on me that it has now. You know, so much of it is related to who's still around. Who do I love? Who do I care about?
1: that's interesting because i feel like the friends that i have then i've known for 15 20 years are are all from different places so i feel like those people even make me feel more not at home because they're from new york they're from dc they're from vietnam and it's just they're from all over the the world that nobody's i don't have any childhood friends per se that grew up with me in koreatown la or you know i have some friends in orange county are they really feeling like this is i I guess we're not a village anymore right we're not villagers that come from this specific hamlet that's i don't know if that's a bad word hamlet but we don't come from a specific town that three generations ago our parents were you know farmers together and they worked together and they have this shared history and i feel like the the history of the vietnamese for for a lot of people in the diaspora um are like that. But some people are just so busy making money that it doesn't really matter. Right. It's like, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, speaking of a village, like my, my mom is one of seven siblings, and all her siblings live within 15 minutes of her.
1: Wow. Right now?
0: She's, yeah. Right now in Sydney, so they see each other all the time and they're all up in each other's business all the time. <laughs> and, you know, I, when I was younger, I was like, oh, got to get away from this. But now that I'm on the other side of the planet, I look back and I'm like, mm oh, are they're, they're having a a birthday party. i yeah. I want in, or it's like it's the anniversary of my grandpa's passing. and look at the spread they've put yeah. out and, you know, wanting to missing that. Um, yeah, definitely seeing the value in that now that I'm away,
1: yeah. and and probably the cousins that are coming out of that generation who are like maybe five years old right now and are growing up in that and stay there and then they have kids in Kabrama, I think that sense of home because it's not removed from that first generation to the second to the third generation could possibly instill this sense of like we're vietnamese australians in cabramatta and this is our home and that i think is is a wonderful it's a beautiful thing to 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 be a part of that world but it's also okay to you know i'm i'm beginning to be okay with like not having that experience because you know, then we have a place to kind of like um, shine spotlights and project our kind of like questions and curiosity on if we didn't come from that. And I long for that. And it's a perpetual longing to kind of have a proverbial home, but it's fine that that is not there in my life.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: What's next for you?
0: I started working on another novel. Um, It's still very early days. I'm in that like digging up clay Hmm. era of it. Um, So it hasn't even started taking shape yet, but it's also set in Australia. And that's really the only thing I can say right now, (laughs) (laughs) because everything else is probably going to change as I keep writing.
1: It involves people. There are
0: people, there might be a dog, there might not be a dog. (laughs) You never know.
1: Tracy thank you so much um i had a wonderful time and you know especially the last uh 10 minutes when we were just kind of like f- flying all over the place with this idea of home um ties in to the story of, of the book that that you've written and um the kind of like the essence of you know thinking about things that are neither they're they're not here nor there and they're recreated but there is a sense of familiarity and and a sense of home and and i don't mean that like in a house structure but home when i hear the gangster stories and hear all of the the delinquents and the misunderstandings between white people and Vietnamese, all of it feels homely and i really encourage our audience to to go out and pick up a copy of the book um whether it's through audio or reading uh, they're both I, I have the the, the the book copy so I, I did read some parts of it that you know when I was not in, in my car driving and I really I enjoy both of it very much so thank you for coming on the show
0: thank you so much for having me this is wonderful
1: thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran special thanks to Jane Nguyen Catherine Nguyen Tina Fam, Sydney Jamie and Christo Trin. please find us on Instagram Facebook and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube, where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast.